That's the main thing that we're here for. So as I shared with you, one of the reasons that I really love taking people to the Holy Land is because it gives a context to teach the Bible that you really can't teach any other way. It's a uh, uh, most a very effective way to um, to introduce people to the, to the scriptures on a, on a deeper level. Um, and a lot of times in the throughout my life, as I was reading the Bible, uh, I'd come across like the Sea of Galilee or places like that, and think, you know, so what? Yeah, I mean, I know it's uh, the sea on which all this stuff happened. But it was just words on a page. It really meant nothing to me until Kathy and I took our first trip to the Holy Land. And there we are, 20 years ago. Kathy looks the same. And uh, this guy here is me. This is her first husband, me. So we... um, but it was it was really life changing for me because it opened up the scriptures in a way it was like it was like taking a trip in the Bible, and I began to do some study about it and wanted to figure out is this was this transformation of the of my understanding of the scriptures and the reality of the scriptures just me, or is this something that happens to everybody that goes? And I did a lot of study on this, uh, interviewed hundreds of people. Who had been to Israel, and without uh, exception, I think maybe there were only a couple of people that said that it really made no difference to them. But 99% of those that I surveyed said that experiencing it had a profound impact in their spiritual life. And obviously, going is great, but uh, not everybody can go. It, uh, but you can still have a very significant uh, benefit of understanding the context of the scriptures if you understand the land in which it occurred. A great illustration, probably one of the best illustrations, I mentioned Gettysburg, but it's also baseball. Now, here in America, we understand baseball in the sense, just generally, you know, there's first base, second base, you know, the pitcher's mound, there's right field. I mean, we understand these terms. But imagine for a moment that if if you are uh, hearing an announcer talk about baseball, you know, and you hit, it's a it's a high ball, you know, in right field, and then he's running to first. And now he's almost to second. He's going to slide into third. You know, all these all these uh, terms. If you didn't have a mental picture of a baseball diamond, and all you were hearing or reading in a newspaper account or something is uh, about the baseball game, you'd be totally lost. The original writers of the scriptures had the assumption that the people that they were writing to understood the land of the Bible. And so they didn't bother to explain all the things that you and I have to study for to try to figure it out. And that's why studying it and understanding it gives a greater insight into the text itself. Our next-door neighbors, Greg and Diane Peel, are uh, good friends of ours, and they went to uh, Israel with us uh, several years back. And this is something that Greg said that I thought was really Uh, really neat. He said, Wayne had told us after the trip to Israel, you'll never read the Bible again. It's been so true. Being able to visualize the setting now and understanding the time and distance relationships as we read the Bible has really made our Bible study that much richer. And it's it's wonderful because being able to go there gives great insight, but not everybody can go. It's very expensive to travel to Israel, and uh, these days nobody's doing go traveling to Israel. 
it's a uh, it's a privilege that uh, very few people, relatively speaking, get to do in the process of uh, of life. But you can still have great insight through the scriptures in a number of ways, like looking at these wonderful pictures. This is a picture of the Sea of Galilee. We're actually on, we're looking south, and we're on the east side of the Sea of Galilee at sunset. And so you can see, one of the neat things about seeing these pictures is, you know, you take out all the highways and the wires and this and that, and sunsets don't change. Mountains, for the most part, don't change. The Sea of Galilee was here. And so, to be able to look at the things that don't change about this image, you can realize, wow, Jesus saw this. Jesus saw the sunset looking like this, and the hills, and the green, and the beauty of this scene was something that our Lord would have been very familiar with. I'm sure there are more than uh, six principles But uh, there are at least these six principles that we're about to go through. And if you've got a a pencil or a pen and a piece of paper, I want to encourage you to write down six words. And they form sort of an acrostic uh, from our Lord's Messianic title, Christ. C-H-R-I-S-T. There's a word that goes with each one of those that uh, helps you sort of get the the gist of the lessons that the lands of the Bible can teach us as we read through the scriptures. So, the first one, the C, is contentment. And for each of these, I want to give you an example from the scriptures and also a question that we'll ask each other sort of by way of application. So, contentment. And the example is uh, is the tribes of Israel. When God's people settled in the land, God chose where each of the tribes would be. Remember that at Shiloh, Joshua, they, they, they uh, rolled the, the lot, as it were, and the Lord chose where each of the tribes would be. They didn't get to vote on what part of the land they got. God told them, Judah goes here, Ephraim goes here, Dan goes here. And yet, some of the tribes didn't like what the Lord had given them. And they refused to stay there and refused to trust God. And history goes on to show what a bad idea this was. A great example of is uh, Reuben and Gad. In Numbers chapter 32, verse 5, I've written the verse out here for you so that you can uh, just, just look at it. But Numbers 32, 5 says this, The the tribes of Reuben and Gad said, If we found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants as a possession. Do not take us across the Jordan. Now, I'll show you a map here in just a second, but the uh, just look at this beautiful land. This was on the east side of the Jordan River before all the tribes crossed over with Joshua. So Reuben and Gad basically said, you know what? We don't need to cross over into this promised land. This looks great. We'll just stay right here. They didn't cross over into the land that God had prepared for them. And uh, as a result, they, uh, they really struggled. Here is a map of, uh, of the area. And if we look at this next map, you can see the, the red bar that surrounds this area that Reuben and Gad basically said, we want to stay here. And in the springtime, it is beautiful and lush and gorgeous. 
But notice also these other nations, Ammon and Moab, also moved in and wanted this land. And history shows the constant struggle with the Ammonites and the Moabites that Reuben and Gad had. Now, God saw the future. God knew the best place to be. Reuben and Gad, all they saw was what was right in front of them. And so often that is our challenge as well, isn't it? Um, Here's, I mean, some examples of just not willing to wait for God and uh, moving ahead and being willing to settle on second best, which is exactly what Reuben and Gad did. They literally settled on second best or settled for second best. And a lot of times we'll do that in our walk with Christ. We will, we're tired of waiting on God. We don't want to have to uh, wait for what his perfect will is for us. And so we'll just settle for second best and regret it. Uh, some examples are a, 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 a like a lonely believer who's been single for a long time just decides, you know what, I'm going to marry this nice unbeliever. Uh, we get along great, even though God's Word clearly says not to do that. There's a, a an impatient young couple, for example, might make a poor financial decision and get up to their ears in debt. Or uh, a family will join a church because it's right around the corner, even though they don't believe the Bible. The church doesn't teach the Bible. If you drive, you have to drive 45 minutes to Frisco, Texas, in order to go to a church that believes the Bible. But these sort of little compromises and being willing to settle for second best are, is something that doesn't benefit us long term. So here's a question that we can ask regarding contentment. Do I believe that what, God, that what God wants to give me is always better than what I want Him to give me? Right there by contentment, you, you could even write down that question because it's, it's relevant to, to really ponder. Do I believe that what God wants to give me is always better than what I want Him to give me? What we want God to give us is very often short-sighted. The need is immediate. The need brings relief that we see, but God sees farther. God sees in His wisdom uh, the next five, ten plus years, whereas we're looking at the next five, ten minutes. Do I believe that what God wants to give me is always better than what I want Him to give me? Reuben Gad didn't believe that, and as a result, their lack of contentment in trusting God was a challenge for them. So that's C, contentment. The next one, H, is hope. The second, the second one is hope. And the example is God's covenants. Uh, through three wonderful, unconditional covenants, God made promises to Abraham, to David, and through Jeremiah to Israel, the new covenant. And all of these required the land, required the land of the Bible. Uh, we've seen these uh, covenants through our time together as we've opened the Scripture a number of times. But there's, uh, first of all, there's Abraham, and the promise to Abraham included the land. In fact, the promised land is called that because it was promised to Abraham. And this is a picture of uh, the structure that's over the cave of Machpelah, is what it's called, in Hebron. And that is where Abraham... Isaac and Jacob 
as well as their wives, are buried. And this is the only piece of ground that Abraham owned, even though God had promised all of the Holy Land or all of the Promised Land to Abraham. Abraham didn't get any of it except this little piece of ground that he bought. Now, what's significant about that is for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, it requires that Abraham be resurrected. Otherwise, God God reneged on his promise. So God's promises extend beyond the grave to our resurrection. And that is hope. The second covenant is the one to David. And the covenant to David sort of expanded on the covenant to Abraham. The promise to David was that someone from David's house, his, his lineage, would rule on David's throne in Jerusalem uh, over a kingdom that never ended. And we know this is ultimately fulfilled through our Lord Jesus Christ, the, the son of David, born in the city of David, and who uh, will return to rule from Jerusalem to rule the whole world over an eternal kingdom. And then the final covenant is uh, what's called the New Covenant in Jeremiah 31 that promised to replace the old Mosaic Covenant because it, it was temporary, and the New Covenant would come in and it would introduce a wonderful concept of forgiveness of sins. The sacrificial system that was set up just never forgave sins in the sense of permanence. It just, it just forestalled the payment until Christ could pay it on the cross. But the, uh, when, when Christ paid it on the cross, it was done. And the new covenant, Jesus said, this is the new covenant in my blood. And as soon as Jesus died, and he says, it is finished, boom, the new covenant is in effect. And the old covenant is no longer in effect. But this also promises that the, uh, the nation Israel is going to return to the Lord uh, and his spirit will be placed in them. The coming of the Holy Spirit is also part of this, this uh, wonderful covenant. And we, as partakers of uh, believers in Jesus Christ, already have that spirit, the Holy Spirit living within us. So, here's a question, just by way of application for, these, uh, for this second principle of hope. Uh, am I longing for God's kingdom or just for this life? And I long for God's kingdom or just for this life. Again, it's sort of like contentment that we are so longing to have fulfillment here and now, we will grab a handful of jelly beans before we'll grab a handful of broccoli. We like immediate satisfaction. And uh, a lot of times our hope is for the, the trip to Disneyland or our hope and our passion is for something in this life but if we don't have a regular time with the Lord and a regular time in the scriptures and like this with fellowship and reminder that, hey, this life is not all there is. There is hope beyond this life and our longings, our passions need to be beyond this life. Like Jesus said, when he said, uh, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and then all these other things that you're really longing for will, uh, will be added to you as well. So, am I longing for God's kingdom or just for this life? I love this quote by Eugene Peterson in his uh, paraphrase of the, of the New Testament called The Message. He says that waiting does not diminish us any more than waiting diminishes a pregnant mother. We are enlarged in the waiting.
Um, I've thought a lot about waiting. In fact, I wrote a book on, called Waiting on God. It focuses on the life of, of uh, Joseph. And one of the things I discovered through that study was that um, most of the things that we're longing for in our heart of hearts come in the next life. There are so many blessings we do get to enjoy in this life, but our deepest longings and yearnings are coming when God gives the, the fulfillment of these covenants to Israel, and we get to enjoy the blessings of those as well. And uh, that could happen. That could begin as soon as Christ returns for us, which could be today. I love that. Well, the third lesson or the third, third principle is uh, returning, and that's the R. So we've done C-H-R, and the R is returning. The example is uh, the repeated places of grace. I'm not sure of a better way to phrase that, but the repeated places of grace. These sheep here in this picture are grazing in the area of Shechem. And if you were to read through the scriptures, you would see Shechem showing up over and over and over. It showed up in the life of Abraham, in the life of Joshua, in the life of the judges, uh, in the time of the kings with Rehoboam, and then when Jesus with the woman at the well, that was right by Shechem. It just comes up over and over and over. You return to this same place, and so often the lesson there is the same lesson. Some places in Scripture come up again and again, and many of the same lessons occur at the very same places. I want to show you some really great examples. There are a lot of examples, but I'm going to give you the, the, the huge ones so that you can see exactly what I'm talking about. The Jordan River is a wonderful example of a place of returning where God would bring them back over and over. Obviously, when we think of the Jordan River, we think of Joshua crossing it, of it parting, and the nation Israel entering into the Promised Land by crossing over the Jordan River. That happened in the area, generally speaking, of the picture that you're seeing. This is the area right across from Jericho. This is the portion of the Jordan River right across from Jericho where they crossed. And then, of course, they conquered Jericho right after that. If you, This is Israel going into the land. Now, if you were to trace the next time the Jordan River parts, it's with Elisha and Elijah. And remember, Elijah... Uh, went up to heaven in the chariots of fire. And we have that uh, that great uh, spiritual um, swing low, sweet chariot coming forward to carry me home. That was written for this from that, uh, uh, that uh, story of Elijah and Elisha. Here's the Jordan River where the Jordan River parts. And of course, the history at that time is that uh, Israel is about to be taken out of the land with the time of the, the prophets just before the exile. So you have Joshua at the Jordan River, river parts, they're entering the land. Elijah and Elisha at the Jordan River, same part of the Jordan River by Jericho. It parts uh, prior to Israel being taken out of the land. And the next time you see something occurring here is when Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River. It was almost certainly in the same area because immediately after Jesus is baptized, he goes into the wilderness, which is right beside this to be tempted by Satan. But uh, when Jesus is baptized, the river doesn't part, the sky parts. So you have these places of returning over and over, significant transitions in God's history with Israel at the very same place 
right here at the Jordan River. Another great example is the Temple Mount. Wow, think of all the significant places. When you talk about uh, uh, the significant times in Israel's history that occurred on this precious piece of real estate. You know, I just finished reading uh, 1 Chronicles, and at the end of 1 Chronicles, it talks about David, you know, buying this uh, this land. This was the threshing floor of a Jebusite who lived here, a guy named Arana. You know, when Arana either got this property from his father or he's out there threshing his wheat, you know, year after year, he never could have imagined that this piece of ground that he threshes his wheat would become the most precious piece of real estate on the planet. (laughs) Never would he have thought that. And yet it was true. This is uh, Mount Moriah, where uh, Isaac and Abraham had that wonderful experience together in Genesis 22. This is where, of course, the, uh, uh, the temple was built, the first temple, the second temple, and now this little placeholder, this Muslim shrine, is stuck there. Uh, to sort of uh, mark the spot until uh, the Lord needs it again. But uh, this is the, where David took his census, and the angel of God was was hovering over this area and was about to destroy Jerusalem. But over and over, people come back to this area, and it was a place of returning for God's people. And you can't really see, I don't know if you can see my uh, cursor very well, but the place where Jesus died and rose again is uh, in this area. You can't really see you know, with all the, the, the buildings stuck together here. But the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is right here in this area. And I mention that to say it's not too far from the Temple Mount itself and where the ultimate sacrifice was made on our behalf. And then finally... We'll go back up to the Sea of Galilee for one more place of returning. And this is probably my favorite place in all of Israel. What a beautiful shoreline. See this beautiful shoreline? This, uh, well, we could talk for an hour just about everything that you can see in this photo, like this uh, cove here. See this cove, how it's sort of a natural theater? This is probably the cove that Jesus told his parables of the soils. Remember, he launched out on the boat and there was people all around the shore. Um, anyway, we won't get into all that. But a little farther down is this area right here called Tavga. And this is a place where the fishermen would typically fish of uh, the Sea of Galilee. In fact, uh, you can still see fishermen fishing in this area. And I think this is uh, Peter here in front. This is Andrew here in the back driving. Peter's the one in charge. But the... Um, The fishermen still fish this area because fish like it. It was called the area of Heptapagon, or Seven Springs. And the springs created an algae that attracted the fish. It it stirred up the water, and the springs created this environment that was very conducive to fish loving it. And it was true in Peter's day, and it's still true today. You'll still see fishermen fishing this north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And so it was probably in this area that Jesus called Peter to begin with in Luke chapter 5. He provides a miraculous catch, and Peter falls down before Jesus and says, Depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. Jesus says, From now on, Peter, you're going to be catching fish. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. From now on, you're going to be catching men, not fish. So 
And then three years begins of Jesus leading Peter around, and of course, Peter struggling with uh, following Christ because he really wanted to lead Christ, as the other disciples did as well. And it wasn't until the resurrection, that uh, the, the death and resurrection, that Peter came to the point of realizing that he surrenders his will to Christ and that he is not the one that's going to be using Jesus to get what he what Peter wants, but that Peter's going to be the servant of the Lord and to do whatever Jesus wants. After the resurrection, this same area, Jesus brought Peter and several of the other disciples back up here. And if you've ever been to this area of uh, the Sea of Galilee, you know what a special spot it is, because this is probably... In John 21, where Jesus reinstated Peter and provided another miraculous catch. And Jesus was setting up with this area with, by returning. Remember, this is the R, returning. By returning to the same area, he was teaching Peter, basically, look, let's start over right where we started. I'm bringing you back to the spot where I did this miraculous catch three and a half years ago. To give you a deja vu, Peter, this is where we started, and this is where we'll start over. You have failed, but your failure is not the end of our relationship. It's a wonderful principle. It's such a principle of grace, returning to this place of grace. And it's wonderful for you also to be able to think about that because you, you get tired, I get tired of our constant sin. And uh, when we come before the Lord, we get really tired of it, and we think God does too. And the reality is, when we fail, God is not looking to start over with somebody else. He's looking to start over with us. And the experience right here along the shore of the Sea of Galilee shows us that. I, uh, I heard a song recently that had these wonderful lyrics. It's a song called Wonderfully Made, and it's by Ellie Holcomb. It's a beautiful song, but I, I love these particular lyrics. Uh, she sings, what if, to the Lord, it's like a prayer. She says, what if I saw me the way that you see me? What if I believed it was true? What if I traded this shame and self-hatred for a chance at believing you? In other words, if we believed about ourselves what God believes about us, it would transform the way we think. We look at ourselves, we see our sin, and it, we're loaded down with shame and guilt. Even as Christians, we can struggle with this. But along the shores here, this very shoreline in the Sea of Galilee, Jesus taught Peter a wonderful lesson that you and I really need to embrace. And that is that you can sin and sin and sin again, and you will, and I will. But Jesus is always there to bring us back to this place of saying, look, let's start over right here, right now. I'm not done using you. That's what he told Peter, and that's what he tells us. So here's a great question when we look at this issue of returning. Am I learning God's repeated lessons of grace rather than reminders of our failures that remind us of his grace and his desire to start over with us if we'll only follow? Am I learning God's repeated places of grace? We tend to blow it in the same areas over and over and over. And uh, these are opportunities for us to learn lessons if, if, we'll, uh, if we'll do that. Well, the fourth lesson is 
influence. So we've done C-H-R and the I is influence. And this really gets into the geography. And I love this. If you notice this, uh, this image here, you can see the, the, the map and this arrow that goes down in which uh, this highway is called the International Highway that ran the full length of Israel. You couldn't travel here in the desert area. In fact, let me look at this next one. It gives you a better picture. The, the Fertile Crescent traveled up in this area and then down through Israel to Egypt. You, you wouldn't travel across the desert because you couldn't. There's, you couldn't make that distance without water. And so you would follow the rivers and the fertile area, and including all the way down through Israel. And so God basically put Israel in a place where the nations, it was the land bridge to be able to get to and from Egypt or to and from Mesopotamia. Not only that, if you were to, uh, you couldn't cross the sea and you couldn't cross the desert, you had to go through the promised land. This is why over and over in the scriptures, you see Egypt involved. Assyria, Babylon, the Romans. Uh, in between the Testaments, you see the uh, uh, Alexander the Great, and even in more modern history, Napoleon. The reason that these great world powers wanted to control the uh, what's called the Levant, as we know as the Holy Land, is because of geography. You, if you controlled this area, you were able to travel through it. And in fact, it was the only way that you could travel through it. Now, as I said up front, we've got airplanes now, we've got cars, we've got boats, we've got a, a dynamite that'll blow a hole in a mountain and build a road where we couldn't do one before. So we have modern conveniences today where we aren't limited in this way. But it's interesting that birds, if you look at birds, birds will still travel over this area of Israel uh, straight over the land because they don't want to travel. They don't want to fly over the desert as they migrate to, to uh, North Africa, and they don't want to travel over the sea. They want to be able to drop down on the land to rest and eat and sleep. And um, so migrations in Israel for birds are, um, it's a wonderful place to bird watch because all kinds of birds migrate over Israel every year because of this geographic principle that was true of people back in the time of the scriptures, but no longer is it necessarily true. Uh, Heinrich Bunting did a engraving years ago that is exaggerated. It's really more of a theological statement than it is a geographical statement, but it is sort of geographically true in the sense that you have Israel here as the center of the world. If you just think about it, you've got Europe over here, you've got Asia over here, and you've got Africa down here. And the way that you get through these areas is by going through Israel. There's no other way to do it. Uh, so it's a, it's a neat little uh, graphic, and you've probably seen it before. It's very, very famous. But we're on the issue of influence, and the, uh, the importance of influence is very well illustrated with a couple of sites. Um, this is Megiddo that you're looking at here. It's an aerial of Megiddo. And archaeologists, as they've taken a big slice out of it right here, have discovered 26 different layers, 26 different occupations. In other words, 26 different times this, this uh, tell was destroyed and rebuilt. And the significance of it is that uh, the benefits of this geographical position don't change with time. It's still the most strategic 
piece of ground uh, in Israel. If you think of Monopoly, this is the boardwalk of the of the Holy Land. Because if you control this city, you controlled the access to most of the cities along the international highway. Jesus took advantage of this in a very special way. Um, in fact, Matthew relates this. Look at uh, uh, just look at the your screen there at Matthew four verses thirteen and fourteen. He writes, "And leaving Nazareth, he Jesus came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet." The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. So the key phrase there is he left Nazareth, came and settled in Capernaum, and it was the uh, the way of the Gentiles, Galilee of the Gentiles. The, um, the reason that he left Nazareth is because Nazareth was like living in a cul-de-sac. Nobody went to Nazareth unless they were going to Nazareth. I, I love watching movies because um, movies so often get geography wrong. It's like they just sort of throw it in because, you know, it doesn't really matter. But you and I know it matters. And one of the great examples of this is uh, Ben-Hur. You remember this scene from Ben-Hur where Charlton Heston has been wrongly accused and now he is being taken to the galley ships and on his way from Jerusalem to Caesarea where the galley ships were, he makes... Uh, they travel through Nazareth. Ah, great, and he sees Jesus. Well, the only problem with that is that doesn't work geographically. Like, here's a a map. Here at the bottom is Jerusalem, where Charlton Heston was, and he should have gone here to Caesarea, where where the ships were. But instead, he travels all the way up here to the north to Nazareth in order to have that scene with Jesus. Nazareth, as I said, is up on this hill. It's in a cul-de-sac, and you can think of it, and you don't go there unless you're going there. But Capernaum, on the other hand, this is a picture of the north side of the Sea of Galilee, and I've circled Capernaum. Capernaum was right along the International Highway. So Nazareth, you were hidden. It was a great place to grow up in seclusion. But when it was time to do ministry, Jesus didn't stay in the cul-de-sac. He went to the highway. He moved to uh, Capernaum, which was right beside the International Highway, which ran very close to where this modern highway is. And here's the point. We're talking about influence. Jesus moved his base of operations from a place of obscurity to a place where he could influence people uh, with the good news of the gospel of the kingdom. In fact, Matthew goes on to say, that people who, after Jesus made this move, that people uh, all up and down the international highway would hear his message. So here's a question when we think about influence in our lives or this geographical principle that's also true in our lives. Am I influencing the world or am I being influenced by the world? We always need to ask ourselves, who is influencing whom? God's put us where we are to be an influence for him. Because, like I said, Napoleon wanted this land. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, they all wanted it too. It was a wonderful opportunity as the nations came through the land for Israel to influence the nations for God. But the flip side was also true. If they weren't walking with God, 
the nations could influence Israel against the Lord because they were very much uh, very present as well. And unfortunately, that, of course, that's what happened uh, by and large, is uh, Israel was an, affected the wrong way rather than affecting the nations for, uh, for the Lord. Uh, it's sort of an interesting twist in the Old Testament. The nations flowed through Israel. In the New Testament, Christ told us to go to the nations. It's a different, it's a different uh, geographic uh, parameter or paradigm. Okay, the fifth lesson is security. The S of Christ is security. And the example is Israel's vulnerable position. Israel's location was great, but it also meant that they faced constant invasion, and they had to trust God for security. This this picture here that you're seeing is a picture of the Kidron Valley in beside Jerusalem, and this big slope here on the left-hand side is the city of David, or original Jerusalem. Just look at this uh, amazing slope here. The reason that Jerusalem was so strategic is is that uh, it was easy to defend. It had water, it had steep slopes all around it, and it was uh, a place of security. But the problem is that um, if you didn't trust the Lord, not even the security of the geography would work for you. Another great example is Masada. Look at this great picture of Masada. You can see this would this place basically defends itself. And when the rebels in A.D. 73, the the Jewish rebels, uh, rebelled against Rome, they held off the Romans for a long, long time until finally the Romans built this man-made ramp here on the right side and uh, and broke through. But Masada was a place throughout the scriptures, if it is indeed the the stronghold. Somebody muted me. Okay, I'm being censored. Somebody muted me. Okay, so here we are. Um, this was a place also called the, uh, uh, the uh, what was it called? Not the high place, but the stronghold, often called the stronghold in the time of, uh, on the time of David. Here's a great quote by a man named James Monson. Think about this in relation to the life that we lead as well. Monson writes, This land served as God's testing ground of faith. It was here, in this land where both personal and national existence were threatened, that Israel's leaders and people were called upon to learn the true meaning of security and well-being, of trust in the Lord their God. In other words, God put them in a place that required them to trust Him. He didn't put them in the Garden of Eden He put them in a place where you had to trust God or die. So here's a question regarding security. Am I allowing my place in life to develop my security in God? You know, we can look and look and look, but we're never going to find a place in life that doesn't require faith. God designed it that way. God put us in a place that requires a life of faith. Well, the final principle is the T is trust, and a great example is Israel's water sources. Their primary source of water was rain, which comes from God, and uh, they learned to walk closely with God because of that. Uh, Deuteronomy 11, I've got it on the screen here, and it shows the great 
truth that God told Israel before they ever entered the land about water. He says, The land into which you're entering to possess it is not like the land of Egypt from where you came, where you used to sow your seed and water it with your foot like a vegetable garden, in other words, irrigation farming. But the land into which you're about to cross and possess it is a land of hills and valleys. It drinks water from the rain of heaven, a land for which the Lord your God cares. The eyes of the Lord your God are always on it from the beginning even to the end of the year. So God takes them to a land that doesn't have water, doesn't have a lot of it. And if you didn't, didn't trust God and uh, obey God, then it didn't rain. And that's why they always had famines. A time of famine was a time when they weren't trusting God. It's interesting that the Lord uses uh, the word for rain is, uh, or, or water is maim. And the word for heaven is shemaim. Maim, shemaim. In other words, from water, from there. That's what, that's what heaven means. It means water, there. <laughs> it's a great reminder that uh, water comes from God, and your life comes from God. You have to depend on Him. Uh, the New Testament was very similar. Here, this is the picture of the, of the uh, synagogue in Capernaum. And Jesus sent out His disciples two by two, and He says, Don't take anything for the journey. Uh, don't take anything. You're going to trust me. And God provided. And then when they came back from the journey, he brought them to this area on the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee called the Plain of Bethsaida, where the feeding of the 5,000 occurred. And from five loaves and two fish, he multiplied what little they had and, uh, and made it sufficient. So he was teaching them to trust. And so here's a question. Am I trusting God alone to provide for my needs? God alone. God may put you in a place of lack in order to show you that He alone provides. He did that all throughout the Scriptures. He put them in a land that didn't have rain. Jesus sent them out two by two, taking nothing for the journey. And Jesus commanded them to feed thousands and thousands with five loaves and two fish. It was a context of lack. And we're in a context of lack. Think about your life right now. You are probably saying, God, I need dot, dot, dot. You're in a context of lack. And one of the things that the Lord uses that for is to teach us to trust in Him alone. Well, these, uh, these lessons, I hope, are encouraging to you. I'm going to stop the share here and uh, come back together with uh, just the face. But uh, I'm, I mention these lessons to you because it's a great encouragement to you to be able to, um, to think of the Scriptures in, in a context that's more than words. It really happened in a real place. And we all know that. But being able to see these pictures gives you a great uh, reminder. And I hope that these six lessons, the, the C-H-R-I-S-T, are something that you'll think about as you're reading through the Scriptures because they're the lessons that come up over and over and over. I think we've got a little poll here. If uh, Can we take the poll, Dave or John? All right, let's try it. I, I'm, uh, we've got a poll for you, and of these six lessons, which one most resonates with you? So if you, if you know how to do it, do it. If you don't know how to do it, then don't, don't worry about it because we're about out of time. 
But go ahead and vote. I'd love to know which of these most resonated with you as we, uh, as we went through it. So I'll give you a second to do that, and then we'll see the tally uh, here in just a second. Yeah, vote, vote just once, yeah. Unless there's two of you sitting there, and then, of course, each of you can vote. Okay. So about half have voted so far. Good. That's a good response. Looks like trust is really a big one. Interesting how all of these sort of interweave with each other, don't they? It's hard to try to say, pick the difference between uh, security and trust and contentment or hope and faith and things like that. All right. It's, it's a, we've got about 70, about three quarters of everybody's voted so far. And it looks like trust is the winner. And with, uh, looks like, uh, hope being a close second or a, a distant second. All right, thanks. Thanks for doing the poll. That's, uh, that's encouraging. Trust is really kind of a synonym for faith, isn't it? It's a wonderful reminder that we need to uh, place all of our hope in God alone. Uh, one more thing I might just encourage you to do. Uh, it's real simple. We've, uh, you'll be getting an email that gives you uh, a recommended resource, and that is an atlas. I hope you have an atlas. If you don't have an atlas, this is a great one I recommend. It's by Carl Rasmussen. It's called the Bible Atlas or the uh, Zondervan Atlas of the Bible. This is the big one. I'd recommend you get the big one, but it'll also send you another link to what's, what's called the Essential Atlas, which is cheaper, smaller, but uh, also has less in it. But read it. Use it with your Bible study, and I think it will be a great encouragement to you as you do. Well, let's pray, and I'll turn it back over to John. Father, thanks for this, uh, this whirlwind tour through the land of the Bible, and especially through the principles that it teaches us of trusting you with contentment and hope and, and returning and influence and security and trust. And we do, Lord, we trust you and just want to reaffirm our, our loyalty to you and our love for you. Thank you that these, uh, the truth of the scriptures is not some fairy tale, but that it happened in history and it happened at a place that we can still see, reminding us that our faith is rooted in reality. It's not rooted in mystery. It's not something that we're just hoping was really true, but we can see exactly where it happened and archaeology supports it and the scripture and the geography work together like a hand in a glove. These things that we see that we can affirm give great affirmation and encouragement to us about those things that we can't see and can't affirm that are simply faith, like forgiveness of sins and so many of the other things upon which our eternity and our hope is built. So Lord, strengthen us as we continue to read the word and remind us that, um, that you're with us, that you love us, and that you're giving us a hope beyond today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.